Amen. Let's turn in our copy of the Word of God this morning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, this is, uh, we're beginning a, um, just uh, really the end, the beginning of the end of the series that we've been on. Uh, kinda, I kind of looked back on it and thought, man, it seems like we've been in chapters 11 through 13 forever, but we've had a lot of breaks in between, just uh, with various things going on, Easter and, and Mother's Day and Father's Day and, and just a lot of kind of interruptions. So uh, there's really only been 11 sermons, which 13's kind of standard uh, that I tend to follow So uh, for each individual series. So, so anyway, so I guess it wasn't, it just seemed longer. But, but Matthew chapter 13, this is a uh, familiar passage and we're only gonna read the first nine verses together. And uh, I will just read them as you follow along in your copy of the Word of God. And it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, and even some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. You know, uh, I just wanna, we've heard this story so often, and of course we often hear it with the interpretation that follows, and so, and of course that's coming today as well, but I just want you to imagine for the moment that you are the crowd, and you have seen these wonderful things, and, and then Jesus begins to speak, and you're anticipating these words of just profound wisdom, perhaps words that will motivate you to to do whatever it is that you believe that the Messiah is going to do. And then he tells this story. A farmer went to farm. As he's casting out seeds, some fell on the path, some fell on rocky ground, some fell on thorny ground, but some fell on the good soil. The end. Go home. And so you can imagine the, uh, the disappointment of the apostles and, and whenever they come in verse 18 and they say, why do you teach, or excuse me, they come in verse 10 and they say, why do you teach them in parables? We all know that there are some questions that are not really questions, don't we? Like, for example, whenever I tell my daughters, you really don't think I'm going to let you date that boy, do you? That's not a question. That's a verdict. Whenever my wife says, you're not going to wear that shirt with that pair of pants, are you? That's not a question. That is a fashion statement. (laughs) One that I have failed and I'm just trying on the shirt. I have no intention. Sorry, honey, I have offended thee. So, so you can imagine the disciples' uh, confusion by this. And, um, and so we're gonna cover what Jesus says to them, not this coming week, because someone from Grace Seminary will be filling the pulpit for me. But, uh, but next week, we will be covering Jesus' explanation. But I just wanna look at this parable and kind of show you how it fits in the grand scheme of things. And just think about this for a moment. In, the his, in all the history of, of humanity, there have been kingdoms that have tried to expand themselves throughout the world, expand their interests. It's, it's kind of a normal thing for a nation or a kingdom to kind of send their interest out into the world and to make the world just a little bit more like them. And so, for example, in, uh, in ancient Egypt, they became the, really the world's first empire, so to speak. And there's always kind of a weapon or, a, or an invention or an innovation that they're able to use to do this. Like for the Egyptians, it was the chariot. For the Greeks, it was Greek fire. 
For Napoleon's France, it was the cannon. For the West, it was the Colt Peacemaker. That's the gun that won the West is what it's called. In the World Wars, Germany used tanks. And today, even, America is known for their drone warfare, for our drone warfare and our usage of drones around the world. And in the Christian life, we are also called to expand the kingdom, to work toward the expansion of the interest and the kingdom of God. And the question is, is how are we to do that? And there's always a temptation to use the weapons of the world to expand God's kingdom. And just like these nations, beloved Christian nations have also used the weapons of the world to try and do this. And so, but this morning we're going to see that that is not what God commands us to do. That is not what Jesus has given us to spread the kingdom and advance the kingdom. And so just to kind of look at the forest for the trees for a moment. Matthew is divided up, uh, organized by five major discourses. This is starting the third one. And just like the other two, Matthew gives a direct connection to what happened before. In verse one, you see that same day. And so Matthew wants us to understand that these parables are meant to be read in light of the miracles and the controversies that we have just read. And Matthew in chapter 11 and 12 through these controversies is solidifying our conviction of who Christ is and how we are to respond to him. Just like all throughout church history, the, the, the church has always been sharpened by doctrinal controversy. We've, that has always sharpened us. And in the same way, Matthew is using controversy in Jesus' ministry to sharpen his church to understand this is what we believe about Christ and this is what we believe about our response. Now, the question is, is how do we take that conviction to the world? How are we to do that? And that is what the parables are all about. This is how the kingdom is going to reach the world. This is how that conviction goes out. How do we take our conviction to the world? We're gonna see that the way to advance God's kingdom, beloved, is not through the weapons of the world, whether they be politics, whether they be devices, whether they be marketing, whether they be whatever it is. The way that we take the kingdom to the world is through the word and the proclamation of the word of God. That is the sword of the spirit. And that is what we are to use to advance the kingdom. And so the question is, what kind of responses can we expect when we do this? You know, there's really only, there's really only a few responses you can give to a cannon. There's really only a few responses you can give to a sword or a, or a weapon. But we're gonna see here that when it comes to the word of God, there are four overarching responses that we can expect. And so that's what we find in this parable and so as we go through, number one, we're gonna look at both the, uh, both the statement in the parable and we're also gonna look at its interpretation looking in verses 18 through 23. And so number one, what we see here is that our first expectation that we should, we should remember is that we should expect for the enemy to try and steal it. We should expect that the enemy will try to steal the word from those who hear. Now, look in verse four, verse three and four. A farmer goes out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seeds fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them up. Now, this is a, a very simple story, not a whole lot to it. And so, in verse 18, Jesus begins to explain the parable to the disciples. And in verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When someone, anyone, hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown among the path. 
I want you to understand that this is a reflection of ancient agriculture to where the, the farmer, you don't have the techniques that we have today that we've developed over the last 2,000 years. And so in this day, a farmer would simply go out into his field, he had a satchel of seed, and he just throws it indiscriminately everywhere. There's no rhyme or reason, there's no real organization. And inevitably, some of that seed is gonna fall along the path in the field that he has walked a thousand times, <coughs> that people have walked a thousand times, and they're trampling on it. Their feet have kind of trampled that ground to where it's basically become a footpath. Those of you who are deer hunters, what do you look for when you go out into the woods? You look for a deer path, right? You look for a deer trail or something like that where the deers are are deers, is that right? That's not right, is it? Where the deer are, are known to go, right? It's not grammar, but it's a good illustration. So, so that ground is so hardened, it's so, it's so packed down that when the seed hits that ground, it simply cannot penetrate. It simply cannot go down. And Jesus says that that is like the one who hears the word and yet he does not understand it. He does not hear it. He does not hear it in the sense that he does not take it in. He does not receive it. And as a result, the evil one comes and he tries to steal it away. It is proclaimed, the word. It is explained. It is applied. And yet it falls on deaf ears. It just goes in one ear and out the other. And as a result, the devil comes and he steals it away and they will not respond. I like how the ESV translates that the birds devour it. You almost get this idea of viciously, the birds coming in viciously taking it away. But that's not really the point here. What's happening is that the birds take it all. They take it all. There's no seed left whatsoever. That every little bit that, is that was landed on the path is taken by the bird, and the bird doesn't leave anything to chance. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. That Paul's talking about those who in, who, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They take it all, none of it implants, none of it will, will sink in, none of it will be taken to heart. It's all kept at a surface level and nothing else. And even what they have is taken away from them. And so how does, how do, what does this look like in real life? What, what do we, how do we see this happen? Well, let's look in Genesis chapter three for a moment. And let's look at how Satan does this. You know the story, this is the story of the fall. And Satan, as a, in the form of a serpent, comes to Eve, and he begins to question her about God's word, about God's instructions. And in verse one, I'm not gonna read the whole text, but verses one through seven, in verse one, the first thing he says to her is, did God really say? The first thing Satan's gonna do is to cause you to doubt God's word. Did God really say that? Is that what it really means? <clears throat> Is that what it really says? That's just your interpretation. That's just what you think. In the second part of that verse, he says, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree? He makes the commands of God. He makes the word of God sound unreasonable. Did he really say that you shouldn't eat any tree of the garden? He makes God's word sound unreasonable and somewhat extreme. And after Eve answers him in verse four, he says, you will not surely die. He twists God's word and ultimately he denies God's word. In verse five, he says, God knows that your eyes will be opened. He he denies God's goodness. He says, God's only telling you this because he's not really good. He's just, he's just, he's, he's not a somebody who's in control. He's not good. He's a tyrant, just a killjoy. In the second part of verse five, he says, God knows that you will be like God. He convinces you that God is withholding from you. 
Oh, you could have so much more fun if you didn't have those silly Christian convictions. Oh, you would have so, life would be so much better if you didn't have all these rules. That's how Satan snatches the word from unbelievers. There are some other things he does. He convinces you that God's word is wrong. He paints sin as righteous and he paints God's righteousness as the real wickedness. Boy, we're seeing this today in the media, aren't we? He paints wickedness as true righteousness and God's righteousness as the true wickedness. He, he paints the broad way as if it is easy and fun and lying in the narrow way. Well, that is just too difficult. It's too demanding. Beloved, all of these are lies. All of these are lies. And when we believe them, the word of God is snatched from our hearts and it does not implant does not implant, it does not take root, and we fail to respond in saving faith to God's word. So all of these are lies. But the devil is not the only enemy that the Christian faces. There's actually three of them. And the second enemy we face and the second expectation that we should have is that we should not only expect that the enemy will try to steal it, but we should expect that the world will try to burn it. The world We'll try to burn it. Look on back in Matthew 13. He says that in verse four, excuse me, verse five, other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Now, now, now let me kind of clarify that for a moment. Don't think ground that has a lot of rocks in it, okay? Uh, don't, don't think that. But think of a level of ground that has a thin layer of topsoil, but then underneath it, you just have solid rock, a solid rock labor. Layer, And so what happens is, is then the seed falls on that topsoil. Of course, you know, topsoil is very rich. It's very nutrient rich. And so the grain comes up really fast. It actually grows faster than all the other grain. And yet what happens is that when the sun comes out, and by the way, if you have ever been in Israel during a midday sun in the middle of the summer, you know that that is not fun. All right? You think Arkansas is bad. Oh my goodness. It is it is really bad. That's why, that's why this tour coming up is in January. All right, there's a reason for that. And so you do not wanna be in the middle of Israel's sun. And Israel's sun comes up and beats down on that plant. And because the roots are unable to penetrate the rock and get down to the water level, as a result, when that sun comes up, it scorches the plant because it has no source of internal moisture. And so it withers up and it dies. And Jesus says in verses 20 and 21, he says, as far as that was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Just as immediately as they receive the word, as immediately they fall away. The initial reaction is joy. The initial response is enthusiasm. Boy, I, you know, you love these conversions. You love to see this. There's a, there's a, there's a, a sudden love for all things God. There's a sudden love for all things holy. There's a sudden love for the scriptures. <laughs> there's a sudden love for everything that has to do with the Christian faith. And it's so fun to watch, but it's also dangerous because what might be happening there is that while there is initial response, there is no root system being developed. And because there's no root system being developed, the moment that hardship, the inevitable hardships of life the inevitable, uh, the inevitable responses of friends and parents and the pressure that comes from the world, the pressures that come from the job, the pressures that come in school with friends, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things start to beat down on the new Christian. That's why it's so easy for kids to go to camp on the summer and come back renewed in the faith, so excited about the faith, and then when they get to school and get back with their old friends, 
it starts to taper off. And so this person receives it immediately with joy. They, they hear the word. There is response. But the second the world begins to apply the pressure, the true depth of their conversion is seen. And the fact of the matter is that there is simply no depth at all. It exposes the true depth of their conversion, quote unquote. They're fair weather Christians. They're casual Christians. They're civic Christians. Perhaps they're cultural Christians. And the moment that they stop earning social capital by being believers is the moment they fall away. The moment that they stop getting attention from whatever it is that they're gaining is the moment they begin to taper off. They go into the faith much like young couples go into marriage. You know, when you were young and you went into marriage and you thought, man, if I just find Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, if I just find that one, then there will be, then there will constantly be fair weather in our marriage. There will never be any problems. There will never be any issues. And it will be so easy. You know, I can't help falling in love with you. It's so easy to love you. And they think that as long as they find Mr. Right or Mr. Wrong, basically they'll never have to forgive the other person is essentially what it boils down to. And the moment that the regular pressures of marriage start, what's the first thing that comes to their mind? Did I make a mistake? And it's the same way. Many people go into the faith the same way. I thought Jesus was going to make it better. When in reality, oftentimes, following Christ will bring hardship in the world. Following Christ may separate your family. Following Christ may cause the divorce, not prevent it. Following Christ may cause your children to rebel, not bring them back. I want you to understand that there in the world you will have trouble, but have faith. Christ has overcome the world. But that doesn't mean that the trouble in the world is any less real. So what are, so what are some of these outside attacks that the world might try to use? Just look at Romans chapter eight for a moment. In verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord? Who is gonna try to separate you from the love of Christ? Well, the world may try. And when they do, what are some of the things that they're gonna use? Look what he says. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. All of these things are the tools that the world may use to try to separate you from the love of Christ. That they will bring down on us. They will apply pressure. They will apply persecution. They will deny you of basic necessities. Think of all the people, all the bakers and, and different people who have literally lost their livelihood because they had the gall to believe in a Christian view of marriage. They will try to deny you your livelihood. They may even try to kill us. Some other things that they'll do, just trying to kind of think through some of this. They will celebrate those who are mighty in sin. Think about all the people that you see on the covers of magazines. All the people whose faces are plastered on the movie screens. All of the ones who get all the awards in Hollywood. They celebrate people who are mighty in sin. And they lift them up as role models for our kids. And at the same time, they maximize the failures of those 
who stand for truth. Anytime someone falls, has a moral failing, that is all over the news. Why should the world care about that? But they do care. You wanna know why? Because they're trying to convince you that this is not true. And by the way, on the same token, they will minimize the sins and scandals of their own heroes. You ever notice that? Funny how that works. I love the way that Thomas Brooks puts it in his wonderful book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, an old Puritan. You know, I like to read those. And they just have a way of saying things that you just can't beat. He says, the world will show you the worm, but hide the hook. The, wor the world will show you the worm, but it will hide the hook. It will show you how great this is going to, this is going to make your life so much better. And what you don't know is that there's a reason why that worm is in the shape of a J. Because there's a hook in there where they're trying to grab you and trying to hold on. Now, according to Paul in Romans 8, he says, shall all of these things succeed? No, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. But to the one who is the rocky soil, to the one who is the one with no depth of conviction, they are no, there's no depth, no root of the faith that is merely surface. When these things start happening, they will turn away. They will turn away. And by the way, I, you know, I hear a lot of, you know, I don't hear it as much anymore, but I used to hear a lot of preachers say something like this. Good, good and uh, well-intended preachers, but flawed nonetheless, who would say what the church needs today is a good old-fashioned dose of persecution. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And there is nothing macho. There is nothing great about persecution, beloved. There's nothing. And many people fall away from the faith when it happens. That's what happens with the rocky soil. So those are two enemies. And by the way, the, the devil and the world, they're the enemies that get all the attention. They're the enemies that you'll go to churches and boy, you'll hear pulpit pounding sermons about the world and the devil and all of the attention goes to them. But there's a third enemy, one who is much more subtle, one who I believe is much more dangerous. You say, well, what could be more dangerous than the world and the devil? And that is this, we should expect the flesh to try and choke it. We should expect the flesh to try and choke it. Look back in Matthew 13 and the third soil that he mentions in verse seven. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew and choked them. Again, again, this is ancient agriculture and you're casting out seeds indiscriminately and, and some of the seeds inevitably fall among thorn bushes and brambles and, and stuff like that. And because thorn bushes grow up so much quicker, you know, you remember Genesis 3, right? Thorn bushes grow up so much quicker than the grain, and, and even though there's good soil there, it takes up all the nutrients, it steals all the nutrients for itself, and it chokes out, and it starves the grain so that there simply is not a harvest that can be, that can be given. No fruit. The grain simply cannot get what it needs, and it dies, and so in verse 22, Jesus interprets this for us. He says, as for that which was sown among the thorns, it is the one who hears the word, but the cares, notice that, where's this coming from? It's not coming from outside, not like the, not like the enemy, not like the evil one, not like the world, persecution and affliction. It's not coming from without, it's coming from within. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth Choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Proves unfruitful. Like I said, the other two come from without, but the flesh comes from within. 
The desires of the flesh choke out the world and make it so weak that it simply cannot produce any harvest. When the word tend starts to buck up against what we want, when the teaching of the word begins to bump up against our desires, against our traditions, against something that we have always held to, our cherished beliefs, when it begins to interfere with what we want, those desires of the flesh can begin to choke out the effectiveness of the word in our hearts. And every single one of us, we have a heart. And, and I've told you this before, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the heart is simply a synonym for the soul. It is our inner self. It's the real you. It's the real us. And every one of us has something on the throne of our hearts and a healthy, functioning heart is gonna have Christ on that throne. But oftentimes, this little desire starts to work its way up, and that desire becomes a need, that need becomes an expectation, that expectation becomes a disappointment, and that disappointment becomes a desire for revenge. And when that little desire begins to take the throne of your heart, everything you hear, everything you say, everything you interpret, the way you view the world comes through the prism of that desire. And so the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, however, whatever it is that you value, choke out the effectiveness of the word. Look at James chapter one. James chapter one. Verses 13 and 14, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I said that the flesh is so much more dangerous than the devil and the world. Some of you kind of gave me a, a, a strange look when I said that, so let me let me, let me defend that. Let me, let me tell you why I say that. Because first of all, the world and the devil would have no power over you in this temptation if your desire wasn't already there. The world and the devil would not be able to tempt you with something you don't want in the first place. If the desire is not there, then there's no temptation. I cannot stand canned sardines. They are terrible. And if you try to show me a can of canned sardines and say, try this, I'm gonna be like, uh-uh, no way whatsoever. But on the other hand, when I go to Crumb's Bakery, I am paralyzed and cannot order one little thing because I want everything. <laughs> and so I'm completely paralyzed. And I, and, and I just sit here and stare at the menu and the lady's like, hurry up. And I just can't do it because I want a little bit of everything. Bottom line is the devil and the world would have no power over you if there were no desire in your flesh. And so they are activating that desire that's already within you. But the other reason why the flesh is more dangerous is simply this. You can't get away from it. You can separate yourself from the devil. You can separate yourself from the world. But the flesh goes with you everywhere you go. It's with you when you lie down to sleep. It's with you when you wake up. How many times have you said, I'm going to start fresh? Maybe you chose a different friend group or maybe you even moved to a different town and you said, I'm going to start fresh only to find that you fall into the same patterns, the same routines and the same rhythms and yes, the same sin. Why? Because you might have gotten away from those temptations, but you didn't get away from your flesh. 
Your flesh went with you and it goes with you everywhere you go. And that's why I say it's more dangerous. You can't escape it. And that's why the church does, and I'm not talking about any particular church, but the church in general does a great disservice to Christians because they pound the pulpit against the devil, they pound the pulpit against the, the world, but the flesh is left ignored. And Christians go out and they face the world and they face the devil and they don't understand their flesh and they are left vulnerable to even greater sin than what the world and the devil may offer. The flesh goes unchecked and the person knows the flesh and the devil are bad, but they're left completely helpless. By the way, that's why we stress the flesh so much here because I don't want you to be helpless against the world and the devil. But you need to understand your flesh if you're going to do spiritual battle in the world. You need to understand the, the temptation, the, the power of temptation is not coming from outside of you, it's coming from within you. It's coming from our hearts. It's coming from a remaining sin desire that is there and, that, and, the, and Satan and the world are activating it, they're catching it and they're hooking it. You need to understand that. And so what are some of the ways that the flesh will attack us? Number one, the flesh will convince us that our sins are reasonable and good. Even sins that we criticize others for. And yet when we do it, we have a reason for it. Our sins are reasonable. Our sins, you just don't understand. Romans chapter two, verse one, uh, talks about this. He, he says, who are you? You, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The sin will convince you that my sin is reasonable. My sin is, I have a sufficient reason. The flesh convinces us to compare ourselves with others. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, I know I've made mistakes, but I'm not as bad as Randy up there, and if he can stand behind that pulpit, surely I'm okay. The flesh will convince you to compare yourself with others. The flesh convinces us to focus on minors and ignore the majors. The flesh will convince us to focus on minors and ignore the majors. I love how Jesus puts this in Matthew chapter 23. Verse 23 and 24, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite! You tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The flesh convinces you to focus on the minors and ignore the major issues. You know, you, I've been in churches before. I've, I've gone in, visit churches. I've gone in, I've been in churches, been a member of churches before. Not this one, praise the Lord. But I have been in them, and you've seen this. Where you got guys, boy, they're faithful in their tithe. They are faithful to be here every Sunday. They don't go to the bad movies. They don't listen to the bad music. And those same people are just as mean as snakes. You've seen that, haven't you? You know what I'm talking about. They're manipulative. They're divisive. They are just as mean. Genghis Khan would make a better church member. <laughs> You've seen them. And yet these are the pillar of our churches in some cases. Sometimes I'm even talking about the pastor. Same people. They, they don't show compassion they don't show care. They have no idea of Jesus' love. They have no idea of Jesus' mercy. 
And that's what the flesh does. It convinces us to focus on the externals of religion and not on faithful obedience from a heart of love. That's what the flesh does. Jesus says these things will choke out the word in our hearts. Sunday after Sunday, our desires will choke out God's true and living word so that the word does not implant in someone like this. It goes in one ear and out the other. Sermon after sermon after sermon, Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. In fact, sometimes they'll even be the biggest ameners. After all, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Amen? I'm not saying the ameners in here, you're not the devil, I'm not saying that. But don't be. (laughs) So, guys, the point is, is that that's what the flesh does. It causes you to focus on the externals of religion and not on the faithfulness of obedience through a heart of genuine love. And so three insufficient responses, three failures to enter the kingdom, but praise God, there's a fourth soil. Praise God, oh, Christian, that all of us in here under the sound of my voice this morning would be the good soil. We would be the good soil. We should expect that the enemy will try to steal it. We should expect that the world will try to burn it. Yes, the flesh will try to choke it, but praise God, the sheep will hear it. The sheep will hear it. I'm borrowing language from John chapter 10 where he says the sheep hear my voice and they know me and I know them. I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must go and gather them also. I'm using that, that terminology there to say that when we cast out the word indiscriminately, we are preaching the gospel to every person and the good soil will hear it. The sheep will hear his voice and they will respond. Beloved, the point of the parable is to explain the opposition that Jesus is getting in verses 11 and 12. Yes, when we sow the word though, it will bear fruit everywhere we go. It comes with a promise. Yes, there is expectations of peril, but there is also promise. That yes, the good soil is out there and yes, it will hear the word and it will implant deeply in their heart and it will produce a harvest of faithfulness. It will produce a harvest of salvation. Some will always hear the word and respond in saving faith. Isaiah chapter 55, I believe it's verse 11 that says that my word goes out and it will not return to me void. Do you remember in Acts chapter 18, verses nine and 10, when Paul is about to run and God says, no, do not run, stay here and preach because I have many in this city. The good soil will hear the word and it will produce a harvest. In fact, in verse 23, he says here that this is those who hear the word and they understand it and it produces he bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. Now, don't think too hard about the numbers, okay? I've heard people say before, you know, if you know, you're a 30-yield Christian, you're just kind of your average Christian, whatever. The 60-yield Christian, you know, that's usually the person who's preaching that. Just, just saying. And the, uh, and the hundred yield Christian, that's like your Billy Graham, that's your John MacArthur, or pick your favorite celebrity preacher, you know, whoever it is. Beloved, that's, no, that's, that's not what this is saying, okay? The average yield was tenfold. A good harvest was 15 to 20. So a 30-fold harvest was miraculous, so was a 60, and so was a 100. In other words, the question is not whether you are a 30, 60, or a 100-fold Christian. The question, the only question is, does the word of God produce a harvest of faith in your life? That's the only question here. 
Does the word of God produce a harvest? Has it produced a faithful, genuine heart response to Jesus Christ? And is it continuing to bring you to maturity in Christ? If you wanna apply the numbers in any way, I guess you could apply it there, that it's continuing to create greater faithfulness the longer you go. So what's that mean for the church? Let's, let's wrap this up. What does that mean for the church? For our church. What does that mean for Calvary Baptist Church this morning? July, whatever day it is, 2023. What does that mean for us? Church, don't be so fascinated with the tools of the world. Don't be so fascinated with the devices of the world, no matter how good it sounds. People have out there, they have perfected marketing. They have perfected advertisement. They know how to get people to want what they're selling. Don't be impressed by that. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter three, verses 11 through 15 Paul's talking about those who build with gold and silver and hay and stubble and that every one of us will have our works examined by the Lord. Those will go through the fire and the wood and hay and stubble will burn up, but the gold and silver will be refined. Beloved, in the context of 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, the wood, the hay, the stubble, it's the wisdom of the world. And it's those who use the wisdom of the world to try to build the kingdom. And it burns up in the judgment. Yes, you can build a house out of straw, but the first, the first tornado that comes around, I mean, look at what the big bad wolf was able to do. And the world is gonna huff and puff and try to blow your house down. And if, you're, and, if, and if we are a church that is building our church on wood or hay or stubble, we are vulnerable. There will always be those who rely on the wisdom of the world to tell us that the word of God should not take the priority and the precedence in the church. There will always be those who will belittle the priority of the word in the life of the church and they will do it always on the wisdom of the world. Whether it's marketing, whether it's attention spans, whether it's this or that, psychological test, uh, sociology, whatever it is, they will always use the wisdom of the world. And man, it sounds good. But Jesus says the way we advance the kingdom is through the word. The kingdom will not be advanced through politics. It will not be advanced through boycotts. Remember the Disney boycott that failed so miserably in the 90s? That didn't do anything. If anything, it strengthened Disney. The, world, the kingdom of God will not be advanced by those things. It will be advanced by the word of God proclaimed and applied and explained. So beloved, when we are on kingdom mission, we can expect these responses. The enemy will try to steal it. The world will try to burn it. The flesh will try to choke it. But the sheep, praise the Lord, the sheep will hear it. And they will respond. So I applied it to the church. Let me apply it to you and your heart. What kind of hearer are you? What kind of hearer are you? Are you... Are you the footpath? Is all this just gonna go in one ear and out the other? Are you gonna forget it by lunchtime? Maybe go, to, maybe go to lunch and have roast preacher for lunch? Are you one who is shallow? Yeah, you've got all the excitement in the world right now, but the first pressure that comes from the world, you're gonna fall away. You're not building deep roots in your faith. Are you one that the word is bucking up against your desires of the flesh and those desires are choking out the word, its, it's effectiveness in your heart? Or are you the good soil? Are you the sheep? Are you the one who the word is implanting itself deeply in your soul? You know, the Bible says that great peace have they which love your law and nothing will cause them to stumble. 
nothing will cause them. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love your law. Nothing will cause them to stray, to stumble. Is that you this morning? Or are you one of the other soils? I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice is the good soil. And maybe you're here and you're struggling with fleshly desires that threaten to take it from you. Maybe you're here and you are facing the pressures of life and you, and you want to be faithful, but it's just so hard. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never considered the gospel. You've never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're one of those who has fallen away. Maybe you're one of those who your desires have choked out the word. But now you're here. And now you see yourself in the word. And you understand where you are. You say, I need to get this right. Whatever your need is, I invite you to seek the Lord this morning. And respond in saving faith. I'd love to tell you how. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you for this wonderful story that Jesus told. A story that was so simple and yet so profound. A story that has captured the imagination of Christians for years. And yet maybe for years they've never seen the significance or they've never seen themselves in it. Or maybe there are here this morning, those here this morning, and I suspect there are those who are the path, those who are the thin topsoil, those who are the thorny ground. But I also know, Lord, that there are many here who are the good soil. And I pray, Father, as we fight these temptations, because the temptations are no less real for the good soil. Lord, as we do, we will find you faithful to us once again. And the ones who don't know you, the ones who don't understand the gospel will come to you today. Let's stand together. And if you're here this morning and you've never responded to the gospel of Christ, that, that Christ was fully God and fully man and he came and lived a perfect life. He died for the sins of the world to take our place. And because God, the Father, was satisfied, he raised him from the dead on the third day. He's now alive and ascended into heaven, offering himself to you as a savior. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would invite you to come and to hear more of that story. It's not just a story. It's absolutely real. I pray this morning that we will be the good soil. Let's sing together.